All right, we're back. We like doing follow-up on this program, and I, I got to say that our talk about what was not recyclable, according to the Sierra Club, got some responses from listeners. And further clarification on the issue of what uh, what's recyclable in the way of plastics, the East Bay Times weighed in a couple months ago. They know that as regarding plastic packaging, if you need a knife or a pair of scissors to break open the packaging, chances are it isn't recyclable. The rigid packages that are typically called blister packs are no bueno. They noted that plastic film, such as bags covering a new computer, are recyclable if you're taken to retail drop-off locations. And evidently, a list of plastic bag drop-off locations is available online. They, too, noted that most paper cups are not recyclable since they are typically lined with plastic. And many plastic solo cups made from number six plastic are also not recyclable in many places. Paper plates are also generally not recyclable. But certified compostable plates are accepted by organics collection programs. And they also noted that a big concern for sorting centers is fires caused by lithium batteries improperly tossed in the recycling bin. Spokespeople say that the recycling industry nationally is losing about one facility a month to such fires often from rechargeable batteries inside electronics. Yikes. The week sounded off on this recently, too, and they know there were three things you could do to reduce plastic waste. Number one, buy in bulk. They suggested switching to reusable bottles and buying the cleaning products in bulk-sized pouches are good. They also favor concentrated formulas, which saves on packaging as well. They know you should never be without a bag. We all should be reusing shopping bags that are recyclable, but to remembering them is another thing. Their solution is to strategically place reusable bags in all the spaces you inhabit, including your car and your office. And always have one folded into your purse or backpack. And lastly, choose slow shopping. They ask, do you really need every single item in two days? To cut down on packaging waste, place orders with online retails only when you know you've accumulated several items in your shopping cart. Then select no rush shipping, which increases the odds they'll be sent out in a single box. Something else we've been meaning to follow up on is the Bixby Bridge. We reported last October that thanks to its popularity on various idiot social web media sites, the bridge on Highway 1 is being loved to death. Yours truly was supposed to go down Highway 1 a couple weeks ago, but the plans changed. I need to go check this out. Expect a colorful report if things are still bad. Now, some are noting that it was 15 years ago this week that uh, something called the Facebook started in a Harvard dorm. Facebook has grown to something like two and a half billion members, which I think makes it uh, more popular than any religion. Mark Levine, noting the, uh, the constant surge of scandals surrounding Facebook in 2018, noted that um, Facebook has grown to be the market leader in the field of apologizing for privacy violations. Meanwhile, Mark Zuckerberg is considering integrating WhatsApp, Instagram, and Messenger, and <laughs> assures us that, and don't worry, we'll have the privacy thing. Well, we'll get, well, we'll have that covered. It's reported that customers will still be able to interact with each service separately, even though they'll all be combined. Yeah. Oh, and in news related to WhatsApp, it's being reported that the app is now limiting the number of times you can forward a message to five instead of twenty. Their vice president for policy and communications at WhatsApp said in an an event taking place in the capital of Indonesia, Jakarta, we're imposing a limit of five messages all over the world. As of today, WhatsApp is around 1.5 billion users, it's reported. The move was announced by 
Victoria Grand described as Vice President for Policy and Communications at WhatsApp in an event in Jakarta. WhatsApp has about 1.5 billion users and has been trying to find ways to stop misuse of the app following a global concern that the platform was being used to spread face news, manipulated photos, videos without context, and audio hoaxes with no way to monitor their origin. Don't worry, I'm sure they'll fix it with an app. Oh, and one little sidelight to that story we talked about a week or two ago about how a Nest, a security camera system which you can put atop your living room television, got hacked and <laughs> told them the nuclear attack was imminent. The couple cited in the article in the East Bay Times did have their doubts since the NFC Championship game was going about its business unperturbed. But to quote from the piece, after many panicked minutes and phone calls to 911 and to Nest, the couple learned that the They were likely the victims of a hacker, and that panic turned to anger when they found out that Nest knew there had been a number of such incidents, none involving nuclear strike scenarios, but they had failed to alert customers. And there have been reports from across the country indicating a growing problem of hackers accessing the Wi-Fi-enabled cameras from Nest and other similar companies. Well, we'll keep following that sort of nonsense. By the way, when I sent a notification about a new system... uh, wherein smart coolers, I think they were calling them, places that were going to dispense you your Pepsi and Mountain Dew, were also going to have built-in cameras that would take your picture and through biometrics try and decide whether you're a female or male and whether you're young or old and then decide from that how to better market to you. They say, of course, the data is not going to be sent anywhere. Most friends of mine thought this was a terrible idea. But I had one friend who had a rather sanguine view of it and just said, well, as we go forward and more and more of the our commerce is directed to the Internet, people are just going to have, you know, have to get used to giving up some of their privacy. By the way, he spent many years in Silicon Valley marketing. So I think he perhaps he's been unduly influenced by the milieu in which he has been steeped. Not being so steeped, I would jump to an article in The Intelligencer titled, How Much of the Internet is Fake?, Turns out a lot, actually. Article by Max Reed. Peace talks about uh, a couple of schemes from companies where they were, well, let's just say not being honest about the services they were providing. Peace notes that digital advertisers tend to want two things. A, people to look at their ads, and B, premium websites, i.e. established and legitimate publications on which to host them. In these two schemes in the article, they were dubbed Methbot and 3VE by security researchers. Turned out that Huxers had infected 1.7 million computers with malware that remotely directed traffic to spoofed websites, empty websites designed for bot traffic that served up a video ad purchased from one of the Internet's vast programming ad exchangers. They were designed to fool advertisers into thinking that an impression of their ad had been served up on a premium published site on a premium publisher site like Vogue or The Economist. Views, meanwhile, were faked by malware-infected computers with marvelously sophisticated techniques to imitate human bots. Bots faked clicks, mouse movements, and social network logon information to masquerade as engaged human consumers. The article asked the question, how much of the Internet is fake? Studies generally suggest year after year that less than 60% of web traffic is human. In some years, according to some researchers, a healthy majority of it is a bot. The article goes on to note that the metrics are fake. To quote from it, take something as seemingly simple as how we measure web traffic. Metrics should be the most real thing on the Internet. They're countable, 
trackable and verifiable, and their existence undergirds the advertising business that drives our biggest social and research platforms. Yet, not even Facebook, the world's greatest data-gathering organization, seems able to produce genuine figures. In October, small advertisers filed suit against the social media giant, accusing it of covering up for a year its significant overstatement of the time users spent watching videos on the platform. By 60 to 80 percent, according to Facebook, by 150 to 900 percent, say the plaintiffs. I love Facebook's excuse in this. We, o- we only exaggerated 60 to 80 percent. The author said, my favorite stat of the year was Facebook's claim that 75 million people watched at least a minute of Facebook watch videos every day. Though, as they later admitted, that 60 seconds in that one minute didn't need to be watched consecutively. The article also notes the people are fake. The New York Times investigated YouTube last summer and noted that only a tiny fraction of its traffic is fake, but fake subscribers are enough of a problem that the site undertook a purge of spam accounts in mid-December. These days, the Times found, you can buy 5,000 YouTube views, 30 seconds of a video counts as a view, for as little as $15. Sometimes the customers are led to believe that the views they purchase come from real people. More likely, they come from bots. The article suggests you go on the web and find a video of a click farm, which will show you hundreds of individual smartphones arranged in rows on shelves and racks in professional-looking offices, each watching the same video or downloading the same app. Notes, Max Reed, this is obviously not real human traffic. Anyway, the article closed like this. What's gone from the Internet, after all, isn't truth, but trust. The sense that the people and things we encounter are what they represent themselves to be. Years of metrics-driven growth, lucrative manipulative systems, and unregulated platform marketplaces have created an environment where it makes more sense to be fake online, to be disingenuous and cynical, to lie and cheat, to misrepresent and distort, than it does to be real. Fixing that would require cultural and political reform in Silicon Valley and around the world, but it's our only choice. Otherwise, we'll all end up on the bot internet of fake people, fake clicks, fake sites, and fake computers where the only thing real is the ads. And speaking of manipulations, we have to go to the last word section of the week, January 25th issue, for their article titled, The Secret War Behind Amazon Reviews. A longer piece by Josh DeZazia appeared in TheVerge.com and notes that in Amazon's enormous marketplace, sellers will use every dirty trick to get the top spot in searches. And their best weapon turns out to be Amazon's own impenetrable bureaucracy. The article describes how a man who was selling rifle scopes on Amazon received 16 five-star reviews overnight. He thought this was rather odd. Normally that would be a good thing, but these reviews were strange. This scope normally got one review a day. And many of these glowing reviews referred to a different scope, as if they'd been cut and pasted from elsewhere. Not knowing what was going on, the man reported the reviews to Amazon. Most of them vanished days later. Problem solved, he thought. But two weeks later, the trap was sprung. You have manipulated product reviews on our site, an email from Amazon read. This is against our policies. As a result, you may no longer sell on Amazon.com, and your listings have been removed from our site. Yes, a rival had framed him for buying five-star reviews, which is a high crime in the world of Amazon. They note that when you're buying something on Amazon, the odds are you aren't buying it from Amazon at all. 
The man in this case, Zach Polanski, was one of six million sellers on Amazon Marketplace, the company's third-party platform. They are largely hidden from consumers. But behind any item for sale, there could be dozens of sellers all competing for your click. This year, Marketplace sales were almost double those of Amazon Retail itself, according to Marketplace Plus. For sellers, Amazon is a quasi-state. They rely on its infrastructure, its warehouses, shipping network, financial systems, and portal to millions of customers, and pay taxes in the form of fees. They also live in terror of its rules. Amazon's judgments are so severe that its own rules have become the ultimate weapon in the constant warfare of the marketplace. Sellers devise all manner of intricate schemes to frame their rivals... As Plansky explained, they impersonate copy, deceive, threaten, sabotage, and even bribe Amazon employees for information on their competitors. The scheme that got Plansky is described as a dirty seller trick. As Amazon escalated its war on fake reviews, sellers realized the most effective tactic is not buying them for yourself, but buying them for your competitors. And the more obviously fraudulent, the better. Anyway, when the seller sought legal help on this matter, he found out that, well, the person specializing it, the law firm said that they had bad news. The only way back from suspension is to confess and repent, even if you don't think you've done anything wrong. Amazon doesn't like to see finger-pointing. Amazon calls them appeals, which suggests there's a possibility of having the verdict overturned. In reality, they're more like a plea bargain, crossed with a business memo, the core of which is a plan of action, explanation of how you'll make things right again. And to make things right, you have to admit to having done something wrong. Said Plansky, it was crazy. I felt like I was in prison for a crime I didn't commit, and the only way out was to plead guilty. Then you describe a law firm who frequently works with Amazon sellers, calling the system's mandatory guilty pleas arbitrary verdicts and obscure language, a Kafkaesque bureaucracy with bad writing. Now again, Plansky reported the fake five-star reviews as soon as he'd gotten them, and after he was suspended, he played by Amazon's rules and confessed to everything that could possibly be considered review manipulation, but in the end, it wasn't enough. Several days after filing his appeal, he received an email saying it had been rejected. Amazon won't read the same appeal twice, so now Plansky has to find another infraction to confess to. They wind up writing to Jeff Bezos, and whether the letter got to Bezos or not is unclear, but some higher up in the company evidently did at some point step in and he got his account back. All told, though, it cost him about $150,000 in legal fees. This is the brave new world of internet-based commerce upon which we're going to rely on more and more in the future at the price of our privacy a little bit. Seems like an excellent deal, doesn't it? These things look very well managed. Yes, as you know from listening to this program, I'm, I'm so looking forward to drone deliveries and driverless cars and conducting all my financial transactions without ever using cash. These are all fantastically good ideas. All right, in the 11 minutes or so we have left, I'd like to leave planet Earth and its internet-based commerce and go into outer space. Mr. McMillan. Well, thanks, Mr. McMillan, but I don't want to go even one light year from home. But I would like to go about, I don't know, four light hours away from home. Actually, let me start out about one and a half light seconds away on the moon. 
Well, millions were watching that uh, blood-red solar eclipse last month. Apparently, a meteorite impacted the moon and was witnessed by several different telescopes in several different locations, limiting any possibility that it was just artifact. Something smacked into the moon. There's guesstimates on it that it was something about the size of a football weighing about two kilograms. In striking the moon, it released something like a ton of TNT's worth of energy. And I read somewhere that they're claiming that it opened up a crater about 49 feet across. I I'm, I'm, I'm have my doubts about that. That must be an estimate. Anyway, various astronomers around the world have, have thought that they've seen meteorite impacts on the moon for a long, long time. But I don't know. This might be the first time that enough cameras from left different angles are looking at it to where they can say, oh, yes, absolutely, we got one this time. And we need another musical cue for this one, Mr. McMillan. Raindrops are falling on my head And just like the guy's feet are too big for his bed Well, they're not exactly raindrops as we conventionally think of them, but scientists are now saying that we have spotted the rainy season on Saturn's moon Titan for the first time. Images from the Cassini probe, after processing, I guess a review, have revealed a huge shifting plane of damp ground that probably came from a summer storm. When Cassini arrived at Titan... Back in 2004, it was summer at Titan's South Pole, where there were signs of clouds and rainfall. Models predicted the stormy weather would shift to the North Pole over the next decade or so, but by 2014, just a few clouds had gathered there. Enter Rajani Jingra of the University of Idaho and and her colleagues. They examined images taken by Cassini in 2016 and found the first evidence of rain near Titan's North Pole. On May 6th, the pole was blanketed in clouds. On June 7th, two Titan days later, the clouds were gone and the area was shining bright. When the researchers an- analyzed the light reflected from the area, they found it was likely to be from a wet, slightly rough surface similar to damp pavement after a rain shower. The wetness, of course, was not due to water, but due to methane rain that later flowed into lakes or evaporated away. It said that uh, aside from standing in negative 179 Celsius temperatures, taking in such a rainstorm would be very odd. The raindrops on Titan should fall very slowly because of low gravity. Unfortunately, the article I have doesn't quantify this. Research must continue. Now, we were quite excited on the first of this year when the New Horizons spacecraft blew past a Kuiper Belt object, giving humankind its first Look, close-up look anyway, at one of these objects. In this case, Ultima Thule was the nickname attached to the object. New Horizons mission director Alan Stern referred to it as a contact binary. In other words, two icy objects that sort of bumped together and stuck. (laughs) They're calling one of them Ultima and the other Thule. But uh, I decided yesterday I needed to learn a little bit more about Kuiper Belt objects, so I did some reading, and boy... Boy, was I shocked by what I found. As mentioned on Radio Parallax a couple of weeks ago, some science writers have incorrectly referred to some of these objects that have been recently found as dwarf planets when they really meant to say minor planets, which is a pretty broad term, it turns out. A minor planet is, de- is defined as an astronomical object in direct orbit around the sun. In other words, it's not a moon. It's orbiting itself that is neither a planet nor exclusively classified as a comet. Thus, this broad category of minor planets can include dwarf planets, 
such as the former planet Pluto or the asteroid Ceres, or the Kuiper Belt object Eris, all of which are described as dwarf planets because they achieve hydrostatic equilibrium. Well, of course you say. But uh, Radio Parallax being Radio Parallax, we want to get into this just a little bit. Hydrostatic equilibrium means it's big enough and has enough gravity to where it will pull itself into either a sphere or an ellipsoid. It turns out there's a couple of fairly sizable objects, which by sizable I mean something like 600 mile diameter, out there in the Kuiper Belt that are spinning so fast they're not a sphere. They're stretched out into a lozenge shape, which is stable. Hopefully we'll have more to say about that in a moment. But back to minor planets. Dwarf planets, they're included. Also asteroids, those rocky objects generally found between Mars and Jupiter. But sometimes they come closer to Earth or even get closer to Venus, and they come whizzing past our planet a little uncomfortably close, if you ask me. And then there are centaurs, described as rocky bodies or icy bodies or some combination. They seem to have the properties of both asteroids and comets in some cases that are described as cis-Neptunian objects. Yes, if you're out there past Neptune, you're a trans-Neptunian object, but if you're this side of Neptune, you're a cis-Neptunian object. And among these things that are trans-Neptunian, as we find more and more and more of them, well, it turns out that we have to classify what specific type they are. Which takes us to the best damn term I've heard in years. The Cubawano. Now, this is more traditionally referred to as the classic KBO, or Kuiper Belt Object. But believe you me, I'm going to go with the term Cubawano. The first one ever discovered back in 1992, the first thing discovered out there past Pluto, was 15760-1992-QB. It has subsequently been renamed Albion. Back in the day, when they kept adding more and more of these objects, they just kept tacking them on to calling them QBs, which led to them being called Cubawanos. I like it. And wouldn't you know it, it turns out that Ultima Thule, although it is also a classical KBO, can likewise be referred to as a Cubawano. And that's how we're going to refer to it from this point forward. To be a classic KBO or Cubawano, you have to be out beyond Neptune, a trans-Neptunian object. You cannot be orbiting in a resonance with Neptune. In other words, the multiple of your orbit can't be a multiple of Neptunes. And you cannot cross the orbit of Neptune. If you do cross the orbit of Neptune, you'll be a different type of trans-Neptunian object, the Plutino. The Plutino, named after Pluto, orbits in a 3 to 2 resonance with Neptune, and it also crosses the orbit. Between 1979, I believe it was, and 1999, something like that, Pluto was closer than Neptune. There's a whole family of objects that do likewise, and they are thus known as the Plutinos. But my God, there's all kinds of resonances objects can have out there in their orbits with that of Neptune. 2 to 3, 3 to 5, 4 to 7, 1 to 2, 2 to 5. Also, 4 to 5, 3 to 2, 5 to 8, 5 to 9, 6 to 11, 9 to 19, 4 to 9, etc., etc. And believe it or not, at this point in time, they have found objects orbiting in all of these different resonances. And I'm dying to tell the story of scientific intrigue that surrounds the discovery of the Kuiper Belt object Haumea. But I don't have time today. Thus, we must put that off till next week's program. So we'll instead close with a bit of trivia about other K 
KBOs. The KBO Makemake meets the criteria of being a dwarf planet, but in this case, one that is spinning so fast, something like every four hours that it's stretched out into that Lausen shape. It's two-thirds the size of Pluto on average, I guess, depending on which axis you refer to. And it turns out that it's quite bright. It's the only other object that Clyde Tombaugh had a shot at finding with the instruments he was using back in 1930. But alas, Clyde did not discover Makemake. It took the instruments on top of Hawaii's Mauna Kea till 2005 to do so. And it's sad to note that Clyde did, did search for decades after that, but his instruments just weren't good enough. He did not find any of these Kuiper Belt objects, aside from the first and foremost, Pluto, still the biggest one. Of course, it turned out Pluto narrowly retained its championship belt because Eris, which we'll talk more about on next week's program, was turned out to be just slightly smaller. How close? Well, Pluto's diameter is 2,372 kilometers, estimated. Eris, 2,326. Yep, 46K difference. But it turns out that Eris is considerably larger in mass. Mike Brown, this discoverer, points out that if you took Pluto and added everything in the asteroid belt to it, it still wouldn't have the mass of Eris. So there. And I hate to leave it here, ladies and gentlemen because I haven't given you enough data, I think, for this to be clear, but we will take it up again next week and see if we correct that deficiency. That program will be produced by Edward McMillan, as was this one. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I am your host, Zontar, from the Cubawano Varuna. Can you say that on the air? <laughs> I think so. We suggest strongly you surrender your wills to Zontar. And if you don't want to surrender your will, just serve up Clautu, Berada Nikto. We'll see you next week. <laughs>